What, what word comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? You know, depending on who you are, you may be thinking hypocrites. You may be thinking losers. You may be thinking fools. Maybe if you are a Christian, you'd like to say something a bit more positive. You'd say, oh, kind, gracious, loving, serious, somber, holier than thou. No, maybe you wouldn't say that. This morning, uh, the theme from this text is joy. And we often, we often don't think about joy as being central to the Christian life. And if we do, we tend to mostly just equate it with happiness, general feeling good. But here this morning, as we look to joy, we see that joy is something that endures far beyond our own happiness, but it is also something very central to the Christian life. We see that when God's people rejoice through suffering, they do so because God restored them in the past and will restore them in the future, as he has promised to do. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, said this about our state. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We go on distracting ourselves, we go on filling our hearts with whatever it is that comes our way, like making mud pies in a slum, because we don't understand the goodness offered to us in the infinite joy that we have in the Lord. So we come to this text this morning realizing that we are a people who need to have our fortunes restored and need to see the goodness of the joy offered to us in the Lord. So we look at verses... 1 through 3. And here we see that it's for God's people, for Israel, when this passage was written, and for God's people generally today, that is Christians, those who are in Christ, who have believed in Jesus, who have faith in Jesus. It is for them, this message, that they rejoice because God restored them in the past. It says in verse 4, "...when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream." You know, Zion referring to Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where God meets his people. It says, we were like those who dream. Now, they're not talking about nightmares. They aren't. Uh, I don't know about you. I, I sometimes, I don't dream in nightmares so much as just like, so when I was in school, I, had, I didn't have the going to school in your underwear dream so much. But I did have the, I enrolled for a class that I showed up to once, and then the semester went by, and I had never gone to class, and I was like, how am I going to figure this out? I don't know math or Spanish. I don't know how I'm going to pass this class. I, I did that a lot. More recently, I have the, the dream where I show up on a Sunday morning, and it's 11.15 when I start preaching, and it goes on for on and on and on, and everyone's like, well, he just stopped talking. That's the dream I have more often these days. But he's talking, the psalmist is talking about good dreams, that we were like those who dream. We were like those who hope, who have a vision for a good future when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Really, he's talking about restoring the fortunes of Zion is referring to bringing them out of captivity. 
You know, there's a pattern in the Old Testament that you will see again and again if you read your Bibles. And this pattern is something you may experience in your own life. It begins with God establishing his people. And then the people that God has established disobey his word and rebel against him. And then God gives them up to their sin and the consequences thereof. And then finally God saves them, delivers them, frees them. We see this from the very beginning, right? God creates man and woman in his image. He establishes his people. And then those people disobey his word. He says, don't eat from this tree. They go and eat from the tree. God gives them up to their sin and the consequences thereof. He said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And so they eat from the tree and they are banished from the garden. They no longer have access to the tree they were allowed to eat from, the tree of life. And death enters the world with sin, the disobedience against God. And then God saves them. In Genesis chapter 3, from that moment on, he promises them, there is one coming who will defeat the tempter and who will, who will bring victory to you. And this pattern is repeated again and again. We see it with Abraham, we see it with Isaac, we see it with Jacob. We see it with the Israelites when they go into Egypt. God establishes his people. He, he protects them by having Joseph in Egypt. They come in, they all move there. But what we know later in the scriptures is it says that they were worshiping the gods of Egypt there. They were being disobedient. They were rebelling against God. They were worshiping other things. And so God gives them the consequences. And a new Pharaoh rises up and he enslaves them. He forgets about Joseph. He doesn't remember that guy. He's a new Pharaoh and he just enslaves them. And they spend hundreds of years in slavery. But after those consequences, God saves them. He sends Moses as a messenger. He sends Aaron as the speaker. And, and, and through miracles, he brings them out of Egypt. And this is repeated again and again. It happens with Joshua. If you turn to the book of Judges, you will see it happen like a circle, a cycle, just over and over again through Judges. It happens with David. It happens with Solomon. It happens with everybody. And you know what? In your own life, maybe it's happened too. You were created in God's image, yet you disobey God's word. You rebel against him. We all do this. And so, God gives us up to the, to the consequences of our sin. He allows us to continue in sin, knowing that it's not for our betterment, but that that's what we have chosen. But God saves us. In Jesus Christ, God saves us so that we can be freed from the power of sin, so that we can be delivered from the evils of this world, so that Death is not the end. We can have eternal life. We can await the day in which we are raised from the dead again. This is the pattern we see throughout Scripture. God establishing his people, the people disobeying God and rebelling against him, God giving them up to their sin and the consequences thereof, and finally God saving his people. But it's not an automatic saving. He saves those who believe. And so if, if you have turned from your sin and, and believed and had faith in Jesus, you will be saved. And if you have not ever done that, I invite you to do so this morning. But the passage goes on. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. God's saving is so amazing that the other nations around Israel were gossiping about it. They were talking about it. They were spreading the news. Now, they were spreading the news primarily, it seemed, out of fear. 
But they were still spreading the news. When, when Joshua arrives to the promised land, they heard about this God who had freed them from Egypt all those years ago. So the news of God gets around. And so, so even the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist writes here, this is amazing, in verse 3, he confirms it. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. See, they rejoice because God restored them in the past. We can look to the past and see God's working. For the psalmist, he can look back at all those times. God freed them from slavery in Egypt. He freed them from captivity to Babylon and to Assyria. They can look back and see God's guiding hand protecting them and caring for them and delivering them in the past. And so now, they can look to the future, expecting that God will continue this, expecting that God will continue to work, expecting that God will fulfill his promises. Every time before, God makes promises and he keeps them. And so the Israelites say, I'm expecting God's promises to come through. I'm expecting the Lord to come through for me. Now that pattern we see, even Moses speak about in Deuteronomy. If you'd like, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's the, the fourth book of the Bible, so it's pretty close to the front. You've got Genesis, then you'll have Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Sorry, it's the fifth book. Numbers, and then it's Deuteronomy. Okay? If you've gone to Joshua, Judges, or any of that, you've gone too far. Okay? Fifth book, Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Starting in verse 45. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' kind of, for the most part, it's kind of Moses' farewell speech in some ways. And so he's giving them some final promises and cursings that God has for them. And here he's giving them some cursings. He says in verse 45, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statues, statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. So that's good and uplifting in a, a sermon about joy. But you see here the points are made. God establishes his people. Now the people have disobeyed and rebelled. He says, that you did not, in verse 47, you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. So, what's the consequence? He says in verse 48, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. God gives them the consequence for their sin. He allows these nations to rise up against them because they were not joyful, they were not glad. They did not honor and serve the Lord above all things. Now go to, just turn a page or two in your Bibles to chapter 30. Just going to read three more verses. Now Moses is talking about the restoration. We've talked about the folly that's going to come them, the uh, terrible things, but here's the restoration. Verse 
1 of chapter 30 in Deuteronomy. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is a promise that although God is going to give them the consequences of their sin and allow these nations to overtake them, allow them to be drug out of the promised land and taken into captivity, taken into slavery, put into captivity in different countries and nations and places, God is promising that when you turn back to me and you cry out to me, I will deliver you. And so it is with us. That if we cry out to the Lord and we are ready to obey him and and do so joyfully, he will turn back to us. So we look to the past and we see that God has restored us then. And for us, who are not an Israelite, I don't know about you, I'm not. You can't even really be an Israelite these days, you have to be an Israeli. You can't have the T-E-S, you got to leave those off. These days, if you're a Christian... The past event that we look back to is not just the Exodus, not just God's delivery from captivity in Babylon or Assyria. What we look back to is the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back to God's final Exodus in which he frees us, not from Egypt, but from our own selves, from our own sin. That's why his name is Jesus. It says in Matthew that God named him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, not from Egypt, not from their enemies, but from their own sin. The biggest problem we have is not those nations outside of our our circles. The biggest problem we have is ourselves. And it's ourselves, our own sin, that drives those people to do what they do too. And so we need God and his work to save us. Now in verse 4, the psalmist moves on and says, He said, these are the promises, this is what has happened, I trust in the Lord, he has done good things. But then he gets to verse 4 and he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. He's saying, right now, although you have saved us in the past, we need your help now. Restore our fortunes, protect us, care for us now. The Negev was an area uh, in the Middle East, but specifically the word actually means parched or dry, referring to a dry land or a parched land, a place where there's not a whole lot of water. And he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, saying, restore us, like like putting water in the driest place we can think of. Give us an abundance of fortune in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of what we don't have. And so we see that we can rejoice right now, not just because of what God has done in the past, which is enough, which is great news, which is good news for us, but we can trust God and rejoice right now amidst suffering. Think of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is there any, for for a Christian at least, right? 
Maybe if you're an, you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, you don't believe he created everything. The most controversial verse in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe that's the one you have the hardest time with. But as a Christian, one of the verses that I think is the craziest verse, and I think about it all too often, is this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. I don't know about you, but when things are tough, I don't count it joy. That is not my natural inclination. I don't know about you, okay? Maybe some of you are like, my car broke down and I'm going to go skip and sing through the woods. I, I don't know, but that's not how I react. I'm not a joyful person when things go wrong. I, I like my routine. I like things the way they are. I don't like change, which I know I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? This is a Baptist church. I understand, right? Change is, is, is the enemy. But, but seriously, I, I don't like those things. And so when something goes wrong and something intervenes all of a sudden... I'm not joyful about it. I'm, I'm not happy when I can't hit, figure out, you know, I'm going to have to take out another student loan to pay for school this semester. I'm not happy when I say my car is broke down for the fourth or fifth time, and I don't know what to do but pour more money into that thing. I'm not happy when I say, you know, things are going wrong, when, when I have a family member die unexpectedly. Those things don't naturally bring me joy. Yet the scripture teaches that we are to consider these various trials in our life joy. Not just joy, but pure joy, all joy. How are we supposed to do that? We remember that our joy is not in our fleeting circumstances, it's not in those little things that go wrong or those little things that go right. You know what, if you get a raise, you might be happy, but that doesn't make you joyful. If you get a new job or a new car or a new house or a new spouse, that doesn't necessarily make you joyful. might make you happy. might make things seem okay for a while, but that's not joy. Joy is an enduring hope that all things are going to work out because God is in control. It's looking at the past and saying God has made promises that he has kept, and saying he's made more promises that he's going to keep. And I can hang on through the night. I think of the, the passage in the Psalms. You know, it says that, that weeping may tarry for the night or endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. Of course, sometimes you ask the question, but what if joy doesn't come in the morning? <laughs> but, but here we are, right? This is the predicament of a Christian. We weep, we tarry, things go wrong. Yet we're supposed to consider it joy. Why? Because considering it joy doesn't mean that we're, we're happy about the circumstances. But it means that we know that difficulties that arise in our life make us more like Jesus. If you want to be more like Jesus, you, you may need to get used to things going wrong. If you look from a worldly perspective at the life of Jesus, everything went wrong. I mean, you, you think that that guy goes around and heals people, he feeds people. He walks on water a little bit. He does some great things for people. you think he'd be really popular. But they wanted to hang that guy on a cross and did. If we want to be more like Jesus, we may have to get comfortable with people not loving us, with the world not going the way we planned, and, and being okay with some suffering and persecution coming. And in the midst of that, if we, like Jesus, can be joyful then we have received a good thing. When those things come, we are to consider it joy because we know that God's promises are good and that he keeps them. And we know 
that if we hang on, we will be more like Jesus at the end than we were at the beginning. And not only all that, but we know that amidst the suffering we face now, there is a day coming where that suffering will be no more. We will rejoice when God restores us in the future. You know, the tricky thing as a Christian is we say the final event of history, the event on which the whole world hangs, has happened. We say that Jesus has come, Jesus has died on the cross, even though he didn't deserve it, even though he never sinned, he died on the cross in our place for our sins, and he was raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits from among the dead. Yet, he also ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the world goes on, and we wait. I, I remember sitting at you know, there's, uh, when I was in Scotland doing school, I was at the University of St. Andrews doing my master's in theology, and I remember struggling because we were talking about suffering and we were talking about the world as it is. And I just asked uh, one of my professors, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, well-known New Testament professor in those circles, and I just asked him, I said, if Jesus came and fixed everything, why is it all the way it is? Seriously, like, why is there still suffering? Why is there still death? Why is there still evil? He didn't have the best answer, to be honest with you. His answer was basically, well, that's just how it is, and we don't know what to do with it, and we can't completely explain it. But we can point to a hope. We can point to the future. We can point to when Jesus has not only brought the victory, but brings it into full effect in the future. See, we know right now that God wants us to be at work. He says he is waiting to return so that the full, full people who are to be saved can be saved. We see that in, in the letter of Peter. That God is hanging on. You know, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like the day. And God is, is hanging on so that we might do the mission. God is expecting us to continue working and reaching people for salvation. But there is a hope that is coming. Look in verse 4 through 6. Or sorry, 5 through 6. So we ask for God to restore our fortunes. And then we say, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is an agricultural metaphor. If I was back in Oklahoma, everyone would understand this. I don't know about you city folk, but I always joke with people around here, this is the most urban place I've ever lived, uh, which is actually true, no, no joke. Alcoa is bigger than my hometown and every city I've lived in. The only, I've only lived in one place bigger than Alcoa, and it was smaller than Alcoa plus Maryville, okay? So this is the most urban place I've ever lived in. And so I wouldn't have to explain any of this to people back home, but I'll explain it to you city people, because y'all don't understand. That sowing, you know, you go and you, you sow, you plant seeds in the ground, right? And, and then what happens is you wait for a long time. Now, if you're a really intentional farmer, you may spray it with stuff and water it and all that stuff. But the point is you wait for a long time, and eventually something grows up, right? Yes, you getting that? Everyone, you, this is basic? Okay, good, good, I'm glad. So anyway, so it grows up, and then you reap it, you harvest it, you, you take it in. Now, what people will tell you is you go out and you plant corn seeds, and, and what happens? Corn grows. You, you, plant, you throw these seeds, you know, whatever you plant is whatever will grow, okay? It's all basic stuff. But the crazy thing in the Christian life is this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Although we spread our tears and our worry and our suffering, what comes back to us is pure joy. That's the Christian hope. That although this life is full of tears, 
full of struggle, full of even death. The reality is, when Christ returns, what we reap is not more tears. What we reap is shouts of joy. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Now here's an easy one. Last book of the Bible, so just turn all the way to the other end. Revelation chapter 21, very near the end. Y'all all know, a lot of y'all know this passage, but we got to read it, don't we? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. John is getting a picture of the things that are to come, getting a picture of, of this, this beautiful movement that is happening in which God and his people are coming back together. You know, in the beginning, we had, we had the garden, and God was present with his people fully and completely, and then sin ruptured that, And now through the work of Christ and his return, heaven and earth are coming back together. Okay, so look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You know what's scary about that is if you read that last verse again, just go ahead and read it and tell me, you can raise your hand if you think you haven't committed one of those sins. Our hope is not in the fact that we are perfect. It's in the fact that we are saved by the one who is. And so it's not the fact that we have never been cowardly. It's not the fact that we have never lied. That brings us into that consummation, that, that, that bringing together of all things, where God makes all things new and brings us into the new heaven and new earth with the city that is the new Jerusalem. It is the fact that we are in Christ. That is what brings us there. And in that day... Whether we sow with tears today, and that day we will reap with shouts of joy, for he will wipe away every tear, and there will neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for those things have passed away. All things will be made new, and Christ will be all and in all, and we will be for him. Let's pray.